Come and join the adventures of the magical space pussycats. Exploring bookish horizons and having in-depth lady chats. Welcome back to the Magical Space Pussycats. We are currently recording episode seven. Today we have some very well-deserved congratulations for one of our hosts. And then we're going to be talking about the King Killer adaptation as well as literature on the dark web. As always, my name is Chelsea and I am coming to you guys from the Midwest United States and I am joined by two lovely ladies. I am Elizabeth and I am in Wales. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm in England. All right. And then after that, we will be moving on to discuss the book of the month, which is the nonfiction essay, How to Suppress Women's Writing by Joanna Russ. But yeah. first things first, Miss Caitlin got herself a job <laughs> in publishing. Yeah. Yay! So Bye. very well-deserved congrats. Oh, it's uh, been a long journey. <laughs> Yes. That. Do you want to say anything about it? Uh, no, maybe not like where it is, but like <laughs> what kind of publishing you're getting into? Um, so I'm getting into academic publishing, which is quite a new area for me, but one that's quite exciting. Um, the publisher I'm going to be working for is a fairly small independent one, but they've won lots of prizes from the bookseller and stuff. So they're pretty up there Ooh. with the independent oh. ones. They're doing well. Um, and it's quite a small team, and it's all about non-fiction academic publishing, so I guess I'll find out more when I actually start, but yeah. I'm going to be the publishing Yay. assistant, so that is my role. Oh, awesome. Starting in well, very well cool. Very well done. <laughs> very exciting. For listeners who don't know, um, Caitlin has been, she graduated this summer and has been working to get a job in publishing since then, so we're very, very, <laughs> very, very, very excited for her. The whole way, being like lovely support system for me. Aw, <laughs> thanks, boo. Aww. But we are very, very excited. Oh, yeah. Me um, too. And speaking of very excited, uh, yeah, for those of you who haven't heard, I am like jumping out my seat. I am so excited about this. <laughs> So uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is everything, is teaming up with Patrick Rothfuss, who, depending on who you ask, is also everything, um, to adapt the King Killer Chronicles for both TV and film. And it sounds like the way they're going to do it is similar to what Star Wars is doing with the current franchise, in that they're going mm. to use the films to kind of tell the main narrative of the King Killer Chronicle. And then the TV show will focus on some side characters and some side storylines uh, and some of that stuff. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to do the music, which for those who, of you who have read uh, the first two King Killer Chronicles books, you will know that music plays a huge part. So I'm really excited and <laughs> I'm too. already ready to like pre-order this soundtrack and I don't know how they're going to do it, but I just hope it's not lame and I hope it's oh, as awesome as I want it to be. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be massive. Like how, I mean, I know they're big books, but how are you going to turn that into both movies and a TV show and keep some kind of coherent Yeah, it's going to be very, to uh, I'm just thinking... I it will shock me if Hollywood is content to only do one movie per book. Oh, if you yeah. can turn The Hobbit into three movies, which some would argue that you can't, 
in fact, actually <laughs> turn them into three good movies. Um, but these are like eight times the size of The Hobbit. So I'm just having a hard time seeing this only being one movie per yeah. book. Well, and then it will be Fantastic up. Beasts and Where to Find Them is like 20 pages long and they're making five. Well, oh, that's, yeah. I have feelings about that and they're not good feelings in <laughs> oh, case you can't Chelsea, tell. Mine are amazing feelings, so I will fight you because I love this. <laughs> no, go. You know what? I'm hearing it's it great. I don't have the emotional investment for a five movie oh, franchise sign on and I just can't give Johnny Depp my dollars. Oh, like, that's true. Ooh, he doesn't that. need them and he's just a bad person. So, like, I just can't do that. No, but I totally didn't so realize. I totally didn't realize going to see the first movie that he was going to be in it. Mm-hmm. In the no, first nor one. did I. I thought, but then I heard I about he was in, all like, the controversy later afterwards. One. And I was like, oh, well. Didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it is what anyway, it is. Like I said, he doesn't, he's doing fine with or without my dollars. But that's I just. True. But the I have like on deep... Chelsea. I know. They're very cute. And, all, and I. While Eddie Redmayne is inherently, like, problematic for lots of reasons, he also played the most adorable Marius I've ever seen in my entire life. So, like, I also have feelings there for that. Okay. Just as a kind of, like, fun aside, thinking of the King Killer, how are we thinking it's going to be, and who do we think might be in it? Oh, God. Oh, Elizabeth. Because we should is have it going to be, like, Game of Thrones, this. epic fantasy giantness, or is it going to be, like, so. I, the magician? I don't think it can yeah. be epic Game of Thrones, because that's not the book style, is it? It's very different to that. It's, like, I was gonna one say there's, person well, recounting his story. Which yeah, yeah but that's, not that that's epic. That's a frame. That's like the Hobbit starts with him. But being it's like, very. Let me tell you a tale. Yeah, but I'm I think it be see it as in more... the same genre as like epic madness of Game of Thrones. Like it's not. I'm seeing it being like the first couple Harry Potters because the first book is inherently a going to school story. Mm, it's yeah. the, it's the early part of his life, so it's you know the confrontation with his like big villain and then his progression through basically academia up into a certain point so it's so it, more like the magicians basically yeah uh, yeah i'm thinking it's kind of like the magicians uh i'm thinking it might be a little grittier than which is hard to be when you're the magicians but i just no mm. but the, the tv show was not gritty i have that's seen true the that's true magicians tv show because i didn't I like watch the first episode i didn't want to watch the tv show because i was, I was <laughs> adamantly but it will be away. <laughs> And I think it'll We're also be interesting to find out. I think, yeah, yeah I especially because like, the third book's not out yet, so it'll yeah, be interesting yeah. how that all works since the third one. Well, not I mean, if coming. they can do it for Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, but they had like six, like four or five books of back to work with. I mean, I guess if they're just doing a TV show of whatever the hell they want to within the universe of the King Color Chronicles, they can just. Yeah. fuck around and do whatever they want to until they have yeah. stuff to do so yeah i mean there's lots of stuff hinted at with any sort yeah. of big epic book series that you never get to see again so i guess they've got that stuff to work with i did spend yeah. like 25 minutes on the phone to my fiance just chatting about it because it's like one of his favorite books ever so when he heard the news he was very excited and i was like yeah but what's gonna happen <laughs> like what, what do you think it's going to be? And he was like, I don't really know. I just hope it's not shit. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think well, we all hope that. That's I fair. I think that is all we can all that's hope all we, for. Yeah, all that's, that's a fair hope. 
But the music then, element's going to be cool. I think that will be cool. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. And then next up on the docket, switching gears a little bit, uh, basically completely unrelated, we Elizabeth found a cool thing on the internet, which is essentially uh, a Lit Hub article about literature on the dark web, because I guess the dark web has launched their own lit magazine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's called Tourist or The Tourist, T-O-R-I-S-T. We'll have a link in the show notes, obviously. But it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of the fusion of deep technology and literature. Yeah. I found it really fascinating because it kind of feels like cyberpunk come to life. Mm-hmm. It's very, and I think they know that, you know, the people who are running it and who have contributed to it are very aware of cyberpunk elements of what they're doing mm-hmm. but um yeah there's lots of community spaces on the dark web apparently and somebody decided that they should put out a a thing to see what what writers might want to write uh, who happened to participate in dark web stuff and mm-hmm. they got contributors and they got enough that they could wade through the slush and produce what they think is quite a good little magazine it's got three pieces of fiction uh two poems or two contributions of poetry and two non-fiction mm-hmm. pieces and they sound pretty interesting i gotta say mm-hmm. it's um, definitely yeah yeah it's like you know all of them apparently are a bit thematic about uh personal privacy and the idea of um being watched by a big government and all that things that people who are on the dark web are going to be interested mm-hmm. about and people not on the dark web. I mean, I would be interested in this. <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. Well, no, unfortunately, yeah. you have to have the right browser exactly. to get onto the dark exactly. web yeah. to read the magazine. There is a that reason is it shame. is called the dark web. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting because they gave the the organizers of the um, Lit Magazine gave an interview to the website Lit Hub, and they talk about kind of how there is this perception of the dark web as a place where bad things happen. Um, and he makes a really interesting point that it's not uh, like it's about the anonymity and with anonymity, you will always have people who exploit it for negativity, but you can also have a great deal of freedom in your creativity when you have anonymity and that was the thing they were trying to kind of highlight with the lit magazine so I just thought that was really interesting because like I will admit when I think dark web that is the first thing that I think is like sketchy people trying to do sketchy things behind the complete anonymity of the internet and that is that is part of it but yeah but yeah it is just a lot of people who are concerned about privacy and that yeah and just to to have art coming out of that i think is an important development i think it's it's a logical thing that happens with a lot of movements and spaces that when art starts being created you you've moved on to a new level of it Mm -hmm. yeah definitely all right all right well then i guess that's actually you know not a bad segue into talking about our book of the month which was a nonfiction pick since it was nonfiction november when we were reading it so we picked how to suppress women's writing by joanna russ um this is uh was originally published in 1983 and it is essentially a kind of long form essay about the different ways in which women's writing has been Uh, ignored, suppressed, disenfranchised, um, disregarded, and all of those things. And she 
builds upon each premise and each way and method of suppression uh, throughout the book to then kind of explain, you know, that this is why we have so few feminist writers within specifically the science fiction canon, but then also the larger literary and kind of just artistic world as a whole. Um, does that sound about right, ladies? Did I miss uh, anything yeah, big? Yeah. That sound good? Okay. So thoughts, original thoughts, reactions, how how did we feel? Yeah. <laughs> I think reading it overall, like when I first was reading the, the early chapters, I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's an older book. It was first written in the late 70s. And I was thinking, you know, it's not it's not as bad as this anymore. We have moved on. We don't get this because the, the early chapters are about prohibitions to women mm-hmm. being able to write. So, like, not being allowed, not being let into literary organizations. Yeah. Like the legal, like legal prohibition of yeah. women from actually being able to write. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also not, like, sort of physically having the space, like Virginia Woolf's room of one's own, no time, no, you know, the family structure that won't allow it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... Um, the later you got onto the book, the more you were like, no, no, it's still like this. Like, <laughs> you could start drawing parallels to things that people were saying on Twitter, um, things that you experienced yourself. Um, and you, there was like, she was giving percentages on university level courses of mm-hmm. female writers that are studied or that are on the reading lists. And I was thinking, no, it wasn't that bad. I remember studying like, one of Mary Shelley's minor works, and mm-hmm. then I was like, and Mary Shelley's <laughs> Frankenstein, and, and then and I was like, yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah, and then I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> not quite. What did as you good. think, Caitlin? Um, I definitely think the same as Elizabeth. Like the first few chapters, I thought were less relevant now, and the later ones more so. Um, Mm -hmm. it's quite academic as a text like there's a lot of quotations there's a lot of citations there's a lot of referencing which is good because a lot of it's taken from works that I'd never heard of and people Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of so that was good but it also has quite a uh, scholarly feel to it I think Mm -hmm. Um, yeah this is is not like a sit down and flip through like this, this ain't no damn. No, like, like you this need is to a... <laughs> you need to focus yeah. to get this. Mm-hmm. So I did, and I took a bit more time than I usually do with this. Um, quite mm-hmm. a short book, but it took me like five days, which is quite long for me. So yeah. I was tabbing the whole way through, putting in my little post-it notes at all the bits I liked or didn't like. Mm-hmm. You as can't the case see it, but mine and Caitlin's copies are like. Oh, yeah, littered they look like little rainbow butterflies. Like, these things are jam-packed <laughs> with their tabs. And I mean, okay, I don't well, then, so, much, you know, which, and I had similar feelings, uh, mainly just, I was expecting to feel a lot of, like, rage, but instead I just so felt I. a lot of sadness because this book was published, like, what do we, what, are, Elizabeth, you did the math, like, 40 years ago, something like, like 78. that? 78 was, years ago. And, like, yeah, not all that much has changed. <laughs> like, not enough has changed. <laughs> To make it not feel really sad that it's still like this, so yeah, yeah, it's it's a bummer. But we'll let's go through it point by point since we all kind of agreed that it got more relevant the further we got on. So the yeah. book is, and it's a it's a very yeah. structured book. Yeah. Yes, uh, each uh, premise from Russ kind of is phrased in a similar way, which is um, 
she did or didn't do the thing and then a but so. she wrote it but she shouldn't have she wrote it but look what she wrote about she wrote it but she wrote only one mm-hmm. and then it carries on with all the different arguments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the first kind of premise is like we we're talking about is prohibition which is essentially the actual both the legal methods of keeping women from writing and then lack of access to tools and materials and education, um, keeping women out of school, keeping women literally too busy with the menial like emotional labor of running the house so that they don't have time for creativity, those kinds of things, um, which yeah. there's not like it's that's definitely still there but at least in terms of the structural legalities of prohibiting women from education that's yeah, not yeah if we're talking like you know in in Europe and the west and and like huge most of the world even like the legal sort of prohibitions and stuff the mm-hmm. expectations that everybody goes to school uh-huh. to a certain age are still there but i mean there are still places where it's an issue where people are still working on girls going to school Mm -hmm. um you know around the world but Mm -hmm. yeah that that seems to have mostly gone but there's still i guess you still find the expectation we still get that thing and you know women's magazines and that societal thing of are you doing what you should be doing first yes like mm-hmm. be you know is your house clean are yeah. you looking after your partner yeah. have you are made you your yeah have you home cooked your meal have you folded your laundry have you yeah. done all of those things which spoiler alert no i, I have was not, gonna I say chelsea i'm like things. right there with the no i have like, not done any of those things <laughs> um and then along with that we move on to the second part of russ's premise which is she wrote it but she shouldn't have um so that is uh, bad faith, which is basically creating social systems that either ignore women's writing or devalue women's writing to the point of it, of a practical ignorance. Essentially, we're getting at the systemic institutions that keep yeah. women it's from writing. It's a very, very short chapter. It's yeah. only like three pages long, and she's just explaining the idea of bad faith that, like, people, she wrote it, but she shouldn't have. Like, women shouldn't write. It's not expected. Why yeah. would you do it? Like, if you are um, writing, that means you're inherently ignoring a different aspect of your life that you should have been doing yeah. instead, basically. It, it builds on the prohibitions, and then it builds into the denial of agency chapter, mm-hmm. which is that um, if they if women do write, it's because there's something uncontrolled in them mm-hmm. that they should have controlled, that a good woman, like literally has herself under control emotionally mm-hmm. societally culturally and she would not have written it like a good woman does not write mm-hmm. um, and so that she, they, she says like in reviews they often say that it was like a an emotional outpouring mm-hmm. um, and that the way a book is reviewed if um they think a man wrote it if a reviewer thinks a man wrote it as opposed to if they think a woman wrote it is completely different mm-hmm. And along with that comes the idea, too, that if that a woman's name on it was more than likely written by a man. So you have these these theories of the Bronte's work being largely written by their brother or Virginia Woolf's work being largely composed of ideas from her husband. And these kinds of ideas that say, even though they may have put pen to paper, the creative act of writing was not done by their minds. And thus, it's not a legitimate work of writing of creating of being art yeah um 
And um, it was really funny because this was, I think, the point at which I started thinking, oh, no, you know what? This is actually sort of more relevant to today. Mm -hmm. I've heard writers talking about this. Um, So when you get... uh, Like, Cameron Hurley talks about it a lot, Mm -hmm. how she has um, an ambiguous name. And she always said she thinks she's benefited from having a gender ambiguous name because mm-hmm. Cameron it's spelt with a K nobody's sure whether it's a man's name or a woman's name and often people will refer to her as him the uh-huh. author mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she thinks she gets a different reaction because of that mm-hmm. yeah I think and it was like maybe evident that Robin Harper gets a different reaction for using a pseudonym and that's why mm-hmm. she did it when she started in epic fantasy because epic fantasy is dominated by men and mm-hmm. another man on the scene writing another epic fantasy wasn't a big deal. But a woman mm-hmm. was. And so she went with Robin Hobb because that's a man or could easily be a man's name. Mm-hmm. And I think and then yeah. you have, you know, you have J.K. Rowling and the Robert Gilbert yeah. thing. And that's interesting because that's going reverse because she, you know, well, first of all, she dropped Joanna and went by J.K. Because shockingly enough, it's gender ambiguous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But even then, to then adopt a male pseudonym when you're switching to a crime genre, I think is an interesting choice to make. And I'm not saying she did it for gendered reasons. I think there are probably other things going on there when you're as famous as J.K. Rowling. But it's just yes, interesting. Yes, it was another step away yeah. from, from her actual identity. But yeah, it was interesting, especially in crime where actually um, female authors are pretty dominant, I yeah. think. Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, not, I don't know, but it, it's a much more equal sort of split of the mm-hmm. yeah. numbers. And, and I think it's interesting that you say that that's kind of when it started to modernize for you, Elizabeth, because I don't think it hit me till the next one, which is that uh, the chapter is called The Double Standard of Content, which to me, the best way to sum up that chapter is basically like chiclet. Like, oh, like, you know, women just, you know, when they write, they just, they write about feelings and they write about domestic things Uh, and families. But when men write, they tell stories and they tell stories that have universal importance and everybody can, (laughs) you know, take something from a story by a man. But only women read women's fiction. And it's just like, yeah, this is on the, on the, like cover it's it's she wrote it but look what she wrote about yeah. because it's like yeah yeah she wrote fuck about, you like, look what i wrote about like what yeah <laughs> kitchens and, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and there's this there's yeah she she brings up all these um like in the olden in the olden days people talk <laughs> about how like women as authors they had very narrow experiences they didn't have the experiences of men of going out in the world yeah and so they didn't know about real characters and it was like as though male authors knew about female characters yeah. and they didn't socialize <laughs> with them or that you um, know there's not like actual like you know women just stay at home in some vacuous bubble that involves no interaction with the rest of the world at large and like yeah. thus they don't have stories to tell like it just completely that's to me where I started to be like, yeah, maybe we haven't moved on quite so much from. Yeah, when this and this book is was what written. gets me with the. Um, this is like hard SF versus soft SF. Mm-hmm. This is the bloody argument, and I hate it. Yes. Like, you know, it used to be that because it was a, 
like a gender divide in the employment so you know women wouldn't know about the science so Mm -hmm. they couldn't write about it but and it was like no it's not that it's that there are different stories to be told and one is not better than the other one is not more science fiction than the other Mm -hmm. but it's that it's the application of, of of saying that one is better than the other simply because it's about something different. Yes. As mm. though that could ever mm-hmm. be an accurate summation of yeah. the world. Which is, yeah. Um, and so then we move on to false categorizing, which is basically instead of recognizing women for their own creations, we associate them with their male counterparts. Um, I saw this specifically a lot during the Olympics with athletes. It w- instead of, you know, this female athlete wins gold medal, it would be like, so-and-so's fiancé comes in first at the Olympics. And it's just it's that complete removal of individuality of women as people. Um, and yeah. when Joanna Russ talks about it, she talks about how in doing that, you not only remove, like, any validity from the creation, like, the, the writing as a piece, like, as a thing, but also from, like, just women as people. <laughs> yes, women as individual human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one that gets me every time, because I was got by it, is Mary Shelley. Yeah. Everybody knows Mary Shelley was married to poet Percy Shelley. Mm-hmm. Could you wander around the streets and take a poll of people who actually could quote one of Percy Shelley's poems? Oh, fuck no. Hell no. No. You couldn't. Nah. How I couldn't. People, I, can, I know one, and I did an English degree. Yeah, I don't know. I, I did an I English did degree, and I don't even know if I could name you one. Yeah. And st- but, like, how many people know the idea of Frankenstein? Yeah. That's exactly. pretty universal, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, she was not married to the poet Percy Shelley. He was married to her. Exactly. Exactly. Please and like, thank but you. But I will say, I think, I don't know if this is just me, in my head, I don't know who Percy Shelley is until you just said that. Like, I was okay, never taught that he was the person mm-hmm. to know about. I was taught that Mary Shelley was the person to know mm-hmm. about, and I don't know who her husband is. So maybe that was just luck of the draw well, with me good. and my teacher but yeah but i wasn't I think thought about good, him but it's, so. i think it's because of the story of frankenstein and how it came to be yeah it's like yeah. because they were it was her and percy shelley and lord byron and, and they, they were telling ghost the stories and, and they were like blah, in a blah, cabin blah. and yeah it's <laughs> actually a very good story it, yeah <laughs> it's a good story, somehow yeah. it's always all about them and not the fact that she survived them by decades and went on to write multiple other books and, and was stories. like 16 when she wrote frankenstein like that teenage girl just like wrote a book that we still talk about <laughs> anyway anyway it feeds into the next point which is while we love mary shelley i couldn't elizabeth might be able to Name another thing that Mary Shelley wrote that wasn't Frankenstein. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I can, but I think I'm the odd one out really yeah. because I picked it up off the shelves mm. once. Mm-hmm. Which in, in the next uh, chapter and the next thing we're talking about is that isolation, which is essentially uh, she wrote it, but she only wrote one of it. So we think of Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, uh, Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre, um, you know. We have Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Jane Austen's got a couple floating out there, but the main idea being when we think of female writers, there's usually one primary title that we associate with that author, yeah. and that's about but like, it. Even super famous ones like Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. She, she is the one woman in science fiction that everyone can name, but mm-hmm. they can only name The Left Hand of Darkness. Yep. Usually. Maybe The Dispossessed. Yeah. Like, there's maybe, maybe one the or two. 
Mm, but I like, don't know. If you're outside SFF, I doubt you would know any others. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's very true. But I mean, if it when you when you're first in, it's like, can you name any female author in science fiction and fantasy? Like in science fiction, it's and hard. they'll say Ursula Le Guin, and it's like anyone else. If, like literally. Yeah, if you're new yeah. to the genre, it's like a battle but, to figure it out. Yeah, even though they're out there. You could, yeah, but if you talk about somebody of an equivalent sort of era, and you go like, oh, I don't know, like Asimov. I can, you know, you can name a couple off the top of your head, probably, yeah. with, like, Foundation, iRobot. Yeah. Um, that's all I got, it, but that's two. That's one more than yeah. you usually associate <laughs> yeah. with female writers. Um, so it's just, and it's interesting because not only is that unfortunate from, like, a publishing and an access angle, like, usually only a couple of titles are published, it's also creates this myth and this idea that there can, like, we only need one. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Like, we only need, like, we got a lady, she wrote a book, we're cool. Like, check in the box, moving on. And it's, that's not... And it adds to that sense of anomalousness, like, she wrote it, but it was kind of an accident. Right. Like, it just popped out. Or, like, it's so weird. It's so weird. Like, and it, or it's so weird that she, maybe she didn't write it. It was the, the, the masculine voice inside her head. That was my favorite thing that Russ said. Russ put out this, this general kind of theory that when people say, like, oh, she wrote it, but she's so eccentric, what they really mean is, like, the man part of her wrote it, not the female part, just the smart man dude oh, parts of her brain God, wrote yeah. it. And I'm just like, no. No, 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 no. Oh, man. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, and it also plays into this problem of uh, the, like, it feeds into that. It's all a bigger feedback circuit. So then you get into this issue with lack of modeling of female writing. Like, like yeah, you were yeah. saying, like, before no I got into SFF, if you had asked me, I probably could have named Ursula K. Le Guin and Tamora Pierce because those were the only two SFF lady authors my library had. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And from that, I could name maybe one or two. And if I had not been the kind of reader who was looking for more stories, I would have thought that was all there was. Like, those were just the only ladies who were publishing in science fiction. And God forbid I had wanted to be a writer at the time and thought that there was no place for me or no room for well, me. Yeah, and also it's so that people can say... Well, yes, there are women writing in science fiction and fantasy. Here they are, all two of them. Let's move on. It's not a problem anymore yeah. because we've answered the question. Yeah. Like, it allows them to tick the box and move on and pretend that it's all okay. Like, we've included however yeah. many. And she talks about the percentages in here, and it was really fascinating. Yeah. This chapter yeah. made me really mad because she oh got into God. the statistics of, like, yeah. she looked at, like, college syllabi and what... Uh, like who which authors were represented and what works and it was just like yeah. it didn't matter where you were coming from it was literally like seven percent women and we're good like yeah. we're cool <laughs> and and she was talking about how yeah yeah it made me examine my thoughts and and like i said before it, it was shocking to me when i thought back how few women we actually studied in a lot of the modules um but then she talked about how the one that really got me was she said, oh, you know, you, you look at a syllabus and it's like 7% women. And then she said, but if you increase the number of women, so say we, we add to the canon, mm -hmm. like we're like, we'll, we'll introduce more women, we'll allow, you know, Afro Bannon, we'll allow more Brontes, mm -hmm. we'll allow some modern writers. Um, she said, 
the number of men go up as well. Yeah. Your actual percentage mm-hmm. stays the same. It's like, and she says, if if we start cutting down on the men, the number of women disappear as well. Mm-hmm. So you, you get that static percentage. Mm-hmm. And she and gets thought, into, and that, le- yeah, and this is the same chapter, I think, where she talks about tokenism too, which is that that percentage representational idea of, you know, however many men we have, as long as we have at least one, you know, one to two women for every X amount, then we will have achieved proper representation. And it was interesting because this is when I started to think about all of this in representation, like in relation to people of color as well. Because mm, a and lot. She does bring yeah. that in a bit. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah. Which, granted, you know, given the time the essay was written, I understand why she wasn't trying to be kind of as. Um, cross-contextual with it, but a lot of the things in this book also apply to how we delegitimize people of color and authors of color as well. Yeah. Um, Which Um, is, So many of the arguments that were here were exactly what I've seen and building slowly, like people constructing these arguments on Twitter, Mm -hmm. on blogs, on YouTube, talking about diversity and the importance of criticism, Um, you know, and it's relevant to a conversation that was going on last night on Twitter, where people were talking about the criticism of a particular young Book, adult yeah, novel, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and how a lot of people didn't spot it because there's not enough inclusivity and yeah. diversity sort of going on, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was just it was just fascinating. Yeah, um, um, uh, all very. Relevant. It was very interesting. Yeah, um, I'll link the tweet thread down below, but essentially. Uh, Marines from my name is Marines, who is a, a woman of color on BookTube. She's Hispanic. She was essentially talking about how, in the realm of YA BookTube, the biggest reviewers are coming from places of privilege that will prevent them from being able to spot a lot of these harmful tropes and a lot of these harmful kind of stereotypes that continue to pop up. And if they don't catch them and don't review them and don't acknowledge them, then there is an entire community left uninformed. Um, so that's why we need people of color to not only write and not only read, but to review and to put out voices of criticism. Yeah. Um, and the same goes for women and for LGBT, like members of the LGBTQ community, um, just acknowledging yeah. what other people can't see and kind of forcing them to see it, essentially. And it, it forces the minority groups sort of to have to speak out more loudly and come from a position of arguing against things as opposed mm-hmm. to just saying, no, you know, didn't like this, let's move on. Yeah. Like, you have to be like, no, you were wrong, mm-hmm. which is a very different kind of sort of situation to be in. Yeah. Um, and especially it makes you have sort of seem different. Uh, and it was like when talk going back to the percentages, when she talks about how um, that percentage of women on text, in text mm-hmm. and stuff, um, it's seen as appropriate when women only make up less than 25% of a list. That is, that is equal. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of that study that was done about women and men talking in groups. Yes. Group. I hate this. I know. It, yeah. Women are, are said to be talking the appropriate amount when they talk for 15% or less yeah. of the conversation and are seen to dominate it when they only talk 30% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was this sort of almost the same with, like, in in a group of texts. If you took, like, a bunch of books and said, you know, of these college texts, reading lists, are they equal? And it wouldn't be. No, it mm. wouldn't be. Yeah, that... Um, 
So. Yeah, that idea that like a, a room full of ten people, men will see it as dominated by women if it's like a five fifty fifty split or something like that. Um, it's just <sighs> it's I just it gets to me on a level that's deeper because it starts to get to the uh, institutionality and the larger like power systems in play. I'm thinking specifically of like the media and the more subtle ways that the media kind of disenfranchises and delegitimizes women. Um, Mm. And this plays into the last kind of two points that uh, Joanna Russ makes, which is either that women have to kind of downplay and deny their femininity in order to be taken seriously, or that uh, if they as people won't do that, we as a society will kind of create uh, categorical realms in which we can demean what they create. So essentially, we make really popular things that put women in a bad light. Here I'm thinking of like Game of Thrones. Like Game of Thrones is super popular. Game of Thrones is horrible to women. <laughs> like mm. last season notwithstanding. Game, like, And so we we normalize and legitimize these pieces of fiction and these pieces of art that perpetuate this disenfranchisement of women. Mm, and yeah. that's like and a just big generally, structure. <laughs> yeah, and things things that people like things that are popular with women and especially with younger girls are mm-hmm. as soon as they get popular are derided and ripped apart in a way mm-hmm. that things that you know older men like are not in the same way not at all so things mm-hmm. <laughs> stupid things like pumpkin spice lattes and leggings yeah and or like fandom like the term fangirl fandom. can be oh used God. very derogatorily like yeah um or just you know just in general you see it a lot on tumblr um I spend a lot of time on Tumblr for, like, fan fiction stuff, and you can see it a lot of people who talk about Tumblr. Usually it's not people who are actually on Tumblr. It's just people who are talking <laughs> about it. Um, and there's just this idea that it's nothing but, like, squeeing yeah. teen fangirls who don't know, like, who just love a thing and don't know anything about it. But it's the same it. reaction people have to romance. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a whole genre, and we can talk, you know, it's like, whole genre and people just talk about it in this insanely derogative way as though there's only one or two sort of types of story that are in this genre and that's all there is and it's all trash which like Mm. to be fair talk all the shit you want on romance but like romance publishing is booming romance readers are knocking that shit back like candy if there's one area of publishing that never seems to be hurting it is always romance yeah (laughs) And, and it's the you know the movement of women out of she was saying like a lot of women because they're so pushed out and don't have these models in like mainstream literary fiction or whatever because mm-hmm. it has to be about the real issues yeah like have grown and flourished in romance mm-hmm. fantasy sff crime um all these genre areas mm-hmm. where it was i don't know i guess less of an issue but where the aesthetics are different because the aesthetics of lit fic are, were or are very masculine. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, that about wraps up the actual kind of uh, <laughs> chapter by chapter Because breakdown. I feel like I understand the book so much better from just listening to you two talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel well, like, oh, I yeah, that's... that all makes more sense now. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about talking about, you know, suppressive like structures this. of power is yeah. putting them in context with other people is always 
a very helpful way to yeah, kind of break them down and understand like it's them. A, it's a hard text if you've not gone to university and studied English to wrap your head around how to fit it into your modern day life a bit. And I think that's the, the biggest thing for me, because you were saying, both of you, like, oh, I could definitely see how this relates. And I was thinking, well... I see bits of it, but I don't see it as much as the two of you. And I think mm-hmm. now that you two have sat down and said all that, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm more on the level now. I get it more. <laughs> yeah. I understand but the things, which is good, it, which is it, why I just sat back applied, for a while. I think, <laughs> Yeah, it applied as well, I think, to real life, to just generally going around and stuff. The idea of isolation, like reading this book in isolation, as opposed to creating a community mm-hmm. of... Mm. women and men but like you know where you include other women in your life and can talk to them about experiences yeah. mm-hmm. about your reading about what was right and wrong and what felt weird to you and that you're not the only one experiencing this mm. yeah um, is so so important which is why I you know I think it's part of why we started this um, and why I found like podcast other podcasts like Fangirl Happy Hour and like mm-hmm. Galactic Suburbia just felt like finding a little home on the internet. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It's like because finding it, friends who you yeah, never knew. You just you suddenly needed. feel like you're you're not the mad isolated person. Yeah, yeah. it like legit it just legitimizes your experience. It just takes it from the yeah. realm of like this is me and I have experienced to these things of like people like these are things that people ex- have experienced on the whole and and we can yeah. share in that mm, definitely. because and, she you know. talks about a student of hers who said you know all my models of femininity came through male written text yeah. yeah you know how women should be in a relationship how women should be in society and in work mm-hmm. all came from books written by men and they are just wrong. models they're of wrong. a pretend person. Yeah, they're wrong. They're just, that's they're not, not how. They're just like one-dimensional figures, yeah. whereas mm-hmm. the, you know, and and you start feeling like you're a mad alien because <laughs> you're not like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that lack of models thing as well, that lack of history, there was one bit I put like a huge tab with an exclamation mark on. <laughs> and it was like, um, it was about to... Um, in order to have her belong fully to English literature, the tradition to which she belongs must also be admitted. That lack of yeah. history, it's a mm-hmm. denial of the history of women's writing as well as um, denial of, like, you know, that they did it or that it's not yeah. as good or whatever. Like, that there are huge numbers of women that wrote amazing stuff that have been forgotten. And this is mm-hmm. exactly why we're reading the books that we pick in this podcast yeah i thought it articulated that really well is that you could name tens and hundreds of male writers of fantasy and science fiction who wrote before the 1990s but could you do the same with women i can name loads who are writing right now yeah but the further but back I'm you go, sure the harder could, it gets. Yeah, the yeah. further back we go, the harder it gets. And it is hard. And when we started the Lady Bolts, we had to like research it. We had to sit down mm-hmm. and ask Twitter and go online and be like, right, we need to find some people that we can read. Yeah. Let's do and that. And even now, we don't. Like, this book was out of print. Like you said, Caitlin, like, that's one of the great ironies of a book about the suppression of women's writing no longer being printed widely and sold widely and Mm -hmm. easily available it's so it's it's you're right elizabeth it gave it was good feels it ended on a good note because it just 
reminded us and reminded me kind of why we fight the good fight. And it can be really hard and really exhausting. And I'm not trying to like delegitimize people who are really tired and exhausted by doing it. But that's why we read what we read and talk about it and strive to offer that representation and that that conversation Mm -hmm. for people to join us in. And uh, I got to tell you, 2016 has been real shitty, you guys. So it was nice to have a good a good kind of uptick to end on and a good kind of reminder of that there yeah. are fellow good people and thinkers and, and people who are striving for truth yeah. and facts. And speaking of... And like, I liked the ending where she was just like, I've been trying to finish this book for ages, but I, you know, there's more to say, so you finish yeah, it. Yeah, I was, you have and to I was do like, it. Damn it, that's amazing. <laughs> well done. Well done. Good job, Joanna. Did your editions, you guys, have the afterword? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Where Because I was like, although she mentions it several times about, she says that the uh, the problems in for authors of colour are kind of parallel to those of women Mm -hmm. she talks about you know how women are basically treated as as a minority group despite making up 50 percent of the population she didn't really talk about intersectional yeah problems how the fact that there are black women who have both sides of the issue um, Mm -hmm. and and so on but then she gets to the afterword and said she was trying to do a book on um black writers and on the same sort of like issues Mm -hmm. that happened there and she said and it just got bigger and bigger and she realized that actually why was she doing like that she had been guilty of ignoring it in exactly the same way and why was she the person who was going to correct it yeah when there were so many amazing books um and instead of writing it she's just given you a selection of pointers mm. to other amazing books by black writers yeah. she yeah. literally yeah just does like a, an own voices list at the end and she's like i realize that as a white lady i maybe shouldn't be the one telling you about how awesome people of color like are in the science fiction world so i'll just let you tell them themselves with these yeah. quotes yeah so maybe we'll link some yeah. of them in our description for you to yeah. go and check out. Yeah, because it's a fantastic list, harder. and it made me think, damn it, I need to read. Yeah, like, same. Uh, oh, yeah, I, added, I definitely yeah. added some oh. authors to my TBR Let's from those qu- that quote section at the end. Mm. Yeah, Which, that was and I thought it was nice that she did go back and kind of mention intersectionality and and some of the things she had missed the first kind of go around. I always think it's nice in afterwards when authors can go back and kind of... Yeah. look at their own writing in that critical way and fill in some of the gaps. Yeah, exactly. So, I think that, unless anybody else has huge no, thoughts, I, I think, think that about good. wraps up uh, How to Suppress Women's Writing by Joanna yeah. Russ. Mm-hmm. It was good, guys. It was good. It was not. I was not as ragey as I thought I would be. I think. I think <laughs> no, we it was hit a not better at all place. a rage it fest. It was, good. it was good. It was more of a thought-provoking, interesting yes. thing. Yeah. Uh, so for the next time... We have a little kind of special surprise for you guys. We are actually not going to be reading a book. We are going to be come on, drop the mic. Uh, We are going to be doing our best of 2016 lists. Our next episode should come out sometime towards the beginning of January. And we are each going to be back with, should we say like five-ish ladies? Mm -hmm. Top five-ish books. Uh, 
of 2016 or just, you know, media things that we really liked. And we're just going to kind of come and uh, shout some titles at you guys and share some yeah, love for the things we liked. Yeah, we'll just do a little uh, yearly wrap up. So join us for that. Nothing to read. Just come and listen to us talk about some things that we loved. Um, but before we go, what is everybody currently reading? Caitlin, what do you got? Um, I'm currently only reading one thing that is not non-fiction, so I'm going to talk about that. Um, nice. So I just decided that Christmas is almost here, and <laughs> I have not read enough epic fantasies that are, like, huge. And Christmas is always <laughs> the time that I really like to do that. So I decided I would start one. So I've just started Ruin by John Gwynne, which is the third book in The Faithful and the Fallen, which is a very sort of classic big fantasy. It's kind of in the same vein as classic fantasies, so like Tolkien, that sort of stuff, but less uh, frivolous language. <laughs> and Yes, please. Um, there's like... Fewer songs? Is there less yeah, poetry? Fewer songs, oh but there are still <laughs> things like, you know, a big prophecy and things like that, so very yeah, tropey natch. ideas in it. However, I do think John Gwynne does the tropey ideas quite well, and he's got, like, a whole world where there's one person who's, like, a good guy and one person who's a bad guy, but the bad guy thinks he's the good guy, and he's, like, very disillusioned in the book I'm reading right now. He's just found out he's not, so basically it's all getting very dramatic and very exciting, and um, I'm listening to the audiobook because I like the audiobooks, and that's my read at the moment so that's my main one because it's like 800 pages so yeah that's fair what about you elizabeth are you reading anything it was this the Uh, thing you finished and now you're not reading anything again (laughs) yeah basically (laughs) Uh, so i yeah i'm starting two things at the moment uh both from book smugglers publishing oh nice good choice um, good life choice yeah (laughs) and both kind of collections of shorter works but all tied together so there's Hurricane Heels by Isabel Yap and mm-hmm. The Convergence of Fairy Tales by Octavia Cade. Mm-hmm. And um, Hurricane Heels is about a group of friends. They go off to summer camp and they get like recruited by a goddess to fight against evil. I've heard really good things them, about that book. Yeah, I've heard so really good <laughs> Items of power. It's like... If you remember old kids' fantasy books, you know, your kids in <laughs> Narnia and whatever, they go off and they get given swords and told to fight yeah, the forces of evil yeah well it's like that but except it's been going on for 10 years and they've grown up and they want to like have a life and it's all got a bit they want to give their magic shit back and like be grown yeah ups. like because it's <laughs> like, like why, the why would that work <laughs> yeah because you just think like as an adult you're just like what why would you do that to children like they, they should not be doing that yeah they can't handle so, it um, don't put that on them yeah i'm i'm quite excited to see what it is and um I love Isabel Yap's writing. She's such yes. a like lovely, mm-hmm. lovely writer. Um, and then Octavia Cade's Convergence of Fairy Tales is five fairy tales, like classics, like Cinderella and Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty, uh, rewritten in a kind of sort of creepy, weird style that Octavia Cade has, which is like, it's very grown up. Like the first one in the collection opens with some very bad words. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Like, just be- beautiful and clever and lovely. And, I yeah, I just can't wait. I, I Again, I love Octavia Cade's writing. I'm so pleased that both these authors 
have been working with book smugglers because I think they're magnificent. Wonderful. All right. And then I am, for those of you who watched my wrap up on YouTube or have been following me on Twitter, you may have noticed a theme, which is that like, I'm so far down this Kit Roka rabbit hole that I cannot even see the sunshine anymore. Like I, these are the only books I've been reading for the last nine days. I read the first one on November 25th, which I read to distract myself from all the feelings I had about the Gilmore Girls uh, series. (laughs) But basically in nine days, I have read eight books and I have nine more days to read six more because my goal is to finish the entirety of the Beyond series by Kit Roka (laughs) by the 13th, which is when the last one comes out. Uh, For those of you who haven't... Oh, ladies, it's on. It's going to happen. For those of you who haven't heard the... uh, The Beyond series is... I hate to make this comparison, but it is structured in a similar way to Hunger Games in that there is a centralized city and the surrounding area has been divided into uh, eight districts, essentially, all of which kind of offer a different uh, illicit experience. Um, These books are erotica books, so (laughs) just a heads up, if that's, like, not your jam, this is probably not the recommendation for you. (laughs) But if you're cool with that, like, guys, these books, I don't even have words. These books are, like, there are people of color there is homosexual representation towards all ends of the spectrum there are twosomes and threesomes and fivesomes and people doing things to other people and i just this book is just they're just so amazing this whole series is amazing i, I think i the, may need to pick these up yes, please, please, please do clearly, please do i was recommended these on twitter and the super bundle of like everything was on sale for ten dollars and i was like nice. i'll pay ten dollars even if it's not like the greatest uh, it's a lot of books for ten dollars yeah. And then I bought it, and I couldn't stop reading, and they're amazing. <laughs> so definitely go check them out. Uh, the last one drops on the 13th of December. Oh, but that so would mean we've got to read, like, three excited. books a day to catch you up, Chelsea. <laughs> well, I mean, if anybody it. can do it, it would probably be you, Caitlin. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. If anybody else could do it, it would be you. Well, that's true. Um, but, yeah, I think that wraps up the episode. So thank you guys so much for coming and joining and listening to us, as always. You can find us all over the internet. I will link our respective uh, channels and social medias in the show notes. Uh, Join us in the beginning of January for a kind of 2016 wrap-up. We'll try to keep it cheery (laughs) as much as possible (laughs) as you can for 2016. But uh, otherwise, come find us on Twitter. Shout us out. Let us know what you thought about how to suppress women's writing. And we will see you guys in about a month. Bye. Bye.